This is Partners in Practice, a weekly series dedicated to the evolving field of the advanced practice clinician. Here is your host nurse practitioner, Mimi Secor. According to the Center for Disease Control, there are an estimated 19 million new sexually transmitted infections in the United States each year. Often patients and their partners are asymptomatic and unaware they are infected. Welcome. I'm nurse practitioner Mimi Secor, your host. And with me today is nurse practitioner Terry Warren from the Westover Clinic in Portland, Oregon. Hello, Terry. Welcome back to ReachMD. Thanks, Mimi. Good to be here. We know sexually transmitted infections are a huge problem in the United States and worldwide. So what are some of the most important changes related to preventing sexually transmitted infections? The Center for Disease Control recommends this high-intensity behavioral counseling for all sexually active adults and teens that are at risk for STIs and or HIV infection. And they recommend that healthcare providers should routinely, of course, include a sexual history in all visits with patients and encourage some risk reduction strategies. And those risk reduction strategies include things that you might imagine, that is condom use, limiting the frequency of partner change, abstinence, choosing sexual behaviors that are lower risk, that is perhaps mutual masturbation versus anal sex without condoms, and vaccination. And some things to talk about with patients, again, the use of condoms, but also the use of female condoms, the use of diaphragms, which provide some protection against STIs, talk about circumcision, talk about emergency contraception, and a newer thing is the pre- and post-prophylaxis for HIV and STDs. Also, clinicians are encouraged just to identify all people that might be asymptomatically or symptomatically infected, specifically focusing on symptomatically infected people, those who might not routinely seek out a diagnosis or treatment, those that might be hesitant like teens that are afraid their folks would find out. And next, clinicians are asked to provide an effective diagnosis and treatment and counseling for those who are found to be infected. And a new thing is also being able to initiate partner expedited therapy. And then finally, really important to have discussions about vaccinations for sexually transmitted infection. For instance, the HPV vaccine, hepatitis B, and A vaccinations as a a strategy for preventing people from getting sexually transmitted infections. And certainly these risk reduction strategies don't necessarily have to be done just one-on-one. They could be done in groups. They could be done through videos, a number of different methods. What populations are we seeing an increase in syphilis, and what are the changes and recommendations for syphilis testing, Terry? Well, we're seeing an increase in syphilis in men who have sex with men, and specifically people that are HIV-infected, and so we want to be doing more careful screening. There has been a change in sort of the order of screening in some laboratories. So labs are moving from the old style of screening, starting with, for example, an RPR, and then, if that's positive, moving to a type-specific treponemal test, like an FTA. But Mm -hmm. now the change is some labs are starting with the type-specific treponemal test. And Mm. if that's positive, then moving to a non-type-specific, like an RPR. And if that is negative, then doing a different treponemal test, type-specific treponemal test. If the first test is positive, the specific treponemal test, and the RPR is negative, then moving to like an agglutination test or a different type-specific test for syphilis. Now, in my mind, we've actually had a patient that had this. So he had a 
the, our lab quest switched around and started using this different strategy. So he had a mm-hmm. positive first test, mm-hmm. the type-specific syphilis test. Then he had an RPR, which is nonspecific, that was negative. So then we had to move to the next step, which is a different type of specific syphilis test, which was also positive. Now, if a person has had syphilis in the past, those type-specific tests are going to stay positive. And if they can tell you, yeah, I got treated for syphilis in the past, you don't have to do anything with these people. They're Mm -hmm. okay. But if they can't recall a history of syphilis, then you need to treat them as though they have late, latent syphilis. Is that very clear in the new guidelines? It is clear, but I'll tell you, I had to go back to those guidelines and look at them very carefully since this switch happened, and not everybody's thrilled with this because it certainly adds cost and complication, and the patient gets all mixed up. Our patient was seen by two different people before he came to us, and by the time he came to us, he'd really lost confidence because one place told him he was positive, then somebody told him he was negative on the RPR. So he was hard to convince that he should be treated. All right, so the heads up to clinicians is really be careful to watch what tests are done and to listen to this radio show and to read the guidelines. And, of course, if you have a lesion that is pathognomonic for syphilis, if you've got a painless, raised-edge lesion, get a dark field if you can. And if you don't have it in your office, which virtually no one does, send them to the county clinic. Call the county clinic and say, I've got this patient with this lesion. I'm suspicious. Most county clinics will have dark field capability. What are the advantages of the new NAT testing for chlamydia and gonorrhea, Terry, and what does NAT stand for? Yes, NAT stands for Nucleic Acid Amplification Tests, and these are tests that are actually more sensitive and certainly easier to do than cultures were. I don't think anybody sending swab tests these days for chlamydia or gonorrhea are getting cultures unless they specify that, but certainly a lab would respond and say, hey, are you sure you want to do that? I think you really want nucleic acid amplification. These tests are great because they're more sensitive, so they'll pick up more cases, but also they're great because they can be done from swabs that are collected much more easily. For example, for men, urine is a preferred sample to send for NAT testing. And for women, cervical vaginal swabs. So it turns out that if you add the vagina to the cervix or you just do the vagina, it's more sensitive than just doing the cervix for women. And the new trend is moving away from clinician-collected swabs to patient-collected swabs. So women, if they really don't want to have a pelvic exam, we might want to do that for other reasons, but if they're just testing for chlamydia or gonorrhea, they can collect these swabs themselves, and they're just as good, and the CDC in their guidelines states that, as clinician-collected swabs. So they certainly offer some advantages. If you're just joining us, I'm nurse practitioner Mimi Secor, and I'm speaking today with nurse practitioner Terry Warren. And we're discussing the Center for Disease Control, Sexually Transmitted Infection Treatment Guidelines. So also, Mimi, I think it's important to note that many labs now have the ability to do NAT testing from both rectal and pharyngeal swabs. Not all do, and if they don't have that ability, then they'll tell you about it. But most of the big labs have the ability to do swabs from the throat and from the rectum as well. And With pap smears, you can add on nucleic acid amplification testing from a pap smear for gonorrhea and chlamydia in most big labs. So when should we be screening for gonorrhea and chlamydia? The focus really is on screening women. Most men with gonorrhea, 95% or greater, will have 
symptoms of gonorrhea. I have wanted to do this study where if a man comes into my clinic with toilet paper rolled up in his underwear, I think we could make a diagnosis of gonorrhea on that alone because Mm -hmm. they're so symptomatic. For women, many don't have any symptoms. So the guidelines are, let's start with chlamydia. So the guideline is that all sexually active women under the age of 26 should be screened annually for chlamydia, as should women who are at risk. That is, and the CDC defines at risk as having a new partner or having multiple partners. So gonorrhea screening is a little bit different. The CDC recommends gonorrhea screening for those at risk of infection, again, a new or multiple partners, or if they have had a previous gonorrhea infection or they might have another STD, those who engage in commercial sex work or use IV drugs, and those living in cities with high rates of gonorrhea. So you have to figure out your own city, but those are recommended for screening also. I would also add from a personal perspective that we would include chlamydia and gonorrhea screening for all women who present for STD testing because... Mm -hmm. That's what they're doing there, and I think that's Mm -hmm. expected. As an expert on genital herpes and the author of a new book on the subject, The Good News About the Bad News, I tell all my patients about that book. When should women and men be screened or tested for genital herpes? Well, again, going back to the CDC recommendation, the CDC suggests testing for those who have recurrent genital symptoms with no other reasonable confirmed etiology, those who have a clinical diagnosis, that is, somebody told them they have herpes, but they've never had a lab test because we know that's wrong one out of five times, someone who has a partner with herpes, and in my opinion, and the CDC says you can consider the herpes testing for someone presenting for STD evaluation. In my mind, when people come in for STD testing, they don't know what they're supposed to get tested for. They rely on the clinician to know. And since herpes is the most prevalent STI in the U.S., though it is not the most incident, including herpes testing, seems extremely important to me. Yet many STD testing decisions that clinicians make do not include herpes. And then the CDC says also those with HIV infection and men who have sex with men who are at increased risk of HIV infection because we know that there's a link between having HSV2 and HIV. Screening of the general population is not recommended by anybody. And what tests do you recommend for herpes lesion testing in men and women, PCR versus non-PCR? So there are two types of swab tests for herpes, culture and PCR polymerase chain reaction, which is another kind of gene-amplified testing. And PCR tends to be far more sensitive than culture. Compared to PCR, culture has a 76% false negative rate. So PCR turns out to be not a great test because it's sensitive to time from collection to laboratory arrival, temperature changes. It's just not as sensitive a test. And I think if we talked and had this conversation five years from now, we would only be doing PCR testing. A new PCR was approved by the FDA, so now there is standardized PCR testing available that is FDA approved. Up until this point, there have been kind of homegrown PCRs available, even in big labs, but now we have a standardized PCR available. So there's still confusion for many clinicians when they should be doing herpes serology testing and what type of testing, IgG versus IgM. Can you clarify that for our listeners? So if you're going to do herpes screening, and let's distinguish testing from screening. So testing would be somebody who has symptoms, and that should be a swab test if there's any symptoms present. But screening might be like if they come in for STD screening and they want to know what STIs, if any, they have. So that would be a blood test. If there's nothing to swab, then you do a blood test. And when you do a herpes blood test, you only want to use IgG testing. 
and you only want to use type-specific IgG testing. That is, you only want to use a test that can tell you if they have type 1 separate from having type 2. IgM testing is notorious for false positives. Many people have been told that they have a lifetime of a highly stigmatized STI based on an IgM test that's wrong. So please encourage clinicians to never use IgM antibody tests. They are not as efficient at sorting out new infection from old infection as are with some other disease states and frequently have false positives. So that should be eliminated and only IgG testing done. Keeping in mind that with any antibody test, you're looking for something that people produce and it takes time to produce it. So the numbers are that by three weeks, 50% of people that are going to make antibody will have done so. By six weeks, 70%. And by four months, most everyone. Can you explain the changes in treating uncomplicated gonorrhea in terms of the medication dosing? Absolutely. So that's a big change in the CDC recommendations. And I think I'm really glad that you raised that one. So the new recommendation really is to use a standardized treatment of 250 milligrams of ceftriaxone IM. And the reason that this has changed is because this treatment cures about 99% of all cases of gonorrhea, regardless of whether the infection is urethral, cervical, rectal, or pharyngeal. The increased dose from 125 is largely due to better coverage for throat infection. And in fact, the whole sort of shift is due to better coverage for throat infection. Suffixime, which we've used until just these came out, actually, it's really easy. It's a single dose of oral medicine. It cures about 97.5% of urethral and cervical infections. So that's actually great, but only 92% of pharyngeal infections. And given the commonality of oral sex, this is a problem. This lack yes. of responsiveness to suffixing for pharyngeal infection. If you feel convinced that your patient was not the giver of oral sex and you, you actually believe that, you could use suffixing as an alternative treatment. And mm-hmm. I think the CDC just flat out said 250 ceftriaxone IM because a lot of clinicians aren't very good at sorting out, you know, what parts of your body were exposed in the past yeah, exactly. couple of months. But if you want to finesse that, I think it's fine to use suffixime if you are convinced that there was no pharyngeal infection possible. And then, of course, you would want to always add coverage for chlamydia when you treat for gonorrhea. Everyone treated for gonorrhea should have concomitant medication for chlamydia. So that would be a gram of azithro or doxy 100 BID for a week. Thank you so much, Nurse Practitioner Terry Warren, for coming back on the show again. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Mimi. I'm Nurse Practitioner Mimi Secor, your host. Thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Partners in Practice on ReachMD. You can download this program and any other program in our library at ReachMD.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening.